0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been?
1: I'm doing great, and I'm coming to you today when we're recording this from Kansas City, Missouri. I have traveled to the National Catholic Reporter headquarters, where I'll be in town for a couple days, specifically for some meetings with folks who work on our sister publication, pardon the pun, Global Sisters Report. So I'm very excited. Some of those folks I work with, I have never met in person. So I'm very excited to be here. And our new publisher at NCR, Joe Ferrello, is also here in Kansas City. So I don't know if we'll throw up a screenshot of us recording like we sometimes do, but you'll see that I'm in a hotel room. So I have the equipment and we'll travel and we need to do the uh, podcast from various places. So it's good to be back together discussing the news. Not not a whole lot else going on in my life except for uh, some home renovations and some, some minimal Christmas preparation. How about you, Dan? I know both of you are both like academics at the end of the semester. How's it going? <laughs>
2: Uh, it's going pretty well, generally speaking. It was nice. I actually had the opportunity to see David in person since our last recording. I spent Thanksgiving with my Friar brothers in our community in Chicago, and then we had our annual Advent Day of Recollection. And in between there was a gathering of some friends and colleagues. David and I were both guests of of this gathering. And so it was nice in real time to see each other. We missed you, Heidi, of course, because we're we're where only two are gathered, you know, the Francis Effect does not take place. You need two or three. (laughs) And so but that was fun. It was fun to see folks I hadn't seen in person really since the pandemic many of them. And then last week I was on the road in Atlanta, Georgia of all places for a board of trustees retreat for St. Bonaventure University and so we had a number of meetings and presentations and strategic conversations. But one of the exciting things too was a alumni event and a Capital or comprehensive campaign event. There's a, a, a campaign going on right now at St. Bonaventure. And we were hosted by one of our own, one of our grads, Ed Bastian, who's the CEO of Delta Airlines. Many people know that Delta's headquartered there at Atlanta near the massive Atlanta airport, which is the largest and busiest, I believe, in the world, certainly in the United States. And it was really cool. At the Delta Museum, they have the very first 747-400 that rolled out of Boeing's factory, and Delta had flown it for decades. They retired it, and they turned it into an event space. So uh, we actually had this reception in the 747, and it was very cool. It's a a unique experience, to be sure. So that, that was pretty neat. And so, as you said, Heidi, it is the end of the semester, or very close to it. To quote Charles Dickens, it's the best of times and the worst of times. The best of times is the lights at the end of the tunnel and the holiday season is near us. The worst of times is the stacks and stacks of papers and final exams that are heading this way. Speaking of which, David, how are you doing? I'm doing really
0: well, actually. So the semester is ending for me, too. And I have to say, this has been one of the best teaching semesters I've ever had. And part of the reason for that is I, I revamped the Foundations of Spirituality course that I teach at IPS. And I started the semester with kind of an idea of where I thought that the conversations would go. And this is one of those happy circumstances where the readings lined up right and the ideas lined up right, and the students in both of my sections just came with their A-games every, every single session. And I have learned more this semester and deepened my understanding. It's really changed radically how I'm going to teach this course moving forward. But it was just a really amazing experience to go with these students and to go through with these students. I was just really pleased with how things have turned out, and I last night when I held class with both of the sections, I was just gushing about how grateful I was for the way that things had turned out. There may even eventually be a book coming out of this because the structures and the ideas got lined up so well. I learned a lot about my own subject, and so that's a wonderful thing. And now that the semester is getting done, I get to take five weeks of the Christmas winter break and turn around towards writing projects and house cleaning and all the things that uh, that are necessary to keep both academic and family life moving forward. The one thing I'm not looking forward to is I don't gear shift very well. So moving from one schedule to another schedule always gives me a couple of days of hiccups. And so I'm trying to minimize that and I hope that it'll be smooth, but we'll see. But I'm relative to other times that semesters have ended, I'm feeling really good. So I'm happy about all of that. And my family's doing well, and we're all looking forward to the holidays and to having a little bit of time off together. So that's good, too.
1: I love when that happens with a class, David. Isn't that so cool? Even it makes it seem like the grading is it will be worth it at the end of the semester.
2: It
0: really is. It's just it's nice to know that the plan works. You start a syllabus with hope and nothing else. And you think, even if you've taught the class a couple times, you know how the rhythms are going to go. But every once in a while, you're pleasantly surprised. Most of the time, you're surprised in a bad way. But in this particular case, I was surprised in a very good way. I also just want to say I have really enjoyed this time with the two of you through the fall. Getting a chance to check in with you both every couple of weeks has been a real blessing to me. And so I know that we're not quite at our last show. We've still got one more episode to go, but I just want to say how grateful I am for this time with the both of you.
1: Me too. And I just want to say I'm so grateful that we're all healthy too. We've got a lot of a lot of bugs, including COVID, going through not our family, luckily, but through our kids' schools, through the workplaces. And I'm I'm glad to see that the three of us are all healthy, at least today we are. I'm going to knock on wood just to make sure that stays sure all the way through the holidays.
2: I was going to say you were triggering my Irish superstition because <laughs> the fact that we the three of us are currently unbugged does not mean that we're not going to get it in the final countdown. So thanks for the knocking on wood. And uh, yeah, David, it's always great too when those things align in the classroom and in our research, that's the best of times to go back to Dickens. So yeah, thanks for sharing that.
0: Well, once again, you said the final countdown and I had the little trumpet fanfare go through my head once again. (laughs) So I'm grateful for you putting that earworm into my skull. Dan, do you make travel to Atlanta often? I lived there for nine years. So if you're ever going back, I can tell you some good places to go and get really cheap food.
2: You know, it's interesting. I, I do, but not on a regular basis. So coincidentally, the CTSA had its annual meeting in June in Atlanta. So I was there earlier in the summer. I often go to Atlanta to run the Peachtree 10K road race, though that's just sort of in for the 4th of July and out. And then and interestingly enough, my the province of the Order of Friars Minor, the OFM, Franciscan province in the United States, is moving its headquarters to Atlanta soon. When I say soon, it's because listeners, regular listeners will know that the six OFM provinces in the United States have been in a restructuring process for the last better part of a decade. And that's going to reach its conclusion. And then the emergence of the brand new Our Lady of Guadalupe U.S. province, October 2023. And so the provincial headquarters, it was announced a few months back, was going to be Atlanta. So it's a city. There are a lot of reasons why that, that was selected. We don't currently have a provincial headquarters in the southeast of the U.S., nor in Atlanta. But there are really, I don't want to spend too much time getting into it, but it, coincidentally, there's also a conventual Franciscan who is the Archbishop of Atlanta now. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. So anyways, that's just the flag, David, that I'll probably be in Atlanta more than usual because of that.
0: Well, and to our Atlanta listeners, I just want to say thank you for listening. And I want to give a shout out to Eats down on Ponce de Leon Avenue and to La Fonda Latina and Fellini's Pizza and Good Old Day's Cafe. Like all of those are just, you know, wonderful haunts that I remember with great fondness.
1: Well, I'd like to give a shout out to Georgians for saving our democracy again. And with the uh, <laughs> the runoff election this Tuesday, I don't know if you were there over the election or you were back in South Bend by then, Dan, but pretty exciting to see those results. When I checked in last night, it looked neck and neck, but the Atlanta numbers hadn't come in yet. Still a little surprising to me, the number of people who did not vote for Warnock, given that the opponent was so problematic. But a good turnout, I think, for democracy this week.
2: Yeah, I was back in Indiana by the Tuesday election. I I teach on Tuesday afternoons, but I did go for a run during our meetings over the weekend. And I was in the southern part of the city or south of the city proper, not far from the airport where we're having our meetings. And uh, I did see a lot of Warnock signs, but yeah, I would agree. It's, it is disappointing. It's surprising. But I think in the end, it was close to three or four percentage points. And so that's pretty decisive given the Atlanta runoff or the Georgia runoff dynamics. Nevertheless, yeah, I've seen a lot of commentary, informal commentary on Twitter and other places where people have been talking about the predominantly white evangelical vote in Georgia leaning toward Walker. I think that there's actually been really great commentary, particularly from black columnists in both the New York Times and the Washington Post that have done a good job unpacking a lot of these themes. It sounds like we're breaking into a segment that's not actually one of our three. So maybe we should leave it there. So much to unpack, so much going on. It is the the busiest time of the year. So, David, what are we talking about today?
0: Well, on our episode today, we're going to be looking at the recent oral arguments in a Supreme Court case that goes by the name of 303 Creative, and it is a religious liberty case. So we'll be digging into some of the details of that. We'll be looking at the progress of the Synod with the Catholic Church and the bishops, and we'll be looking at the Vatican's recent relations with China and some new developments that have happened there. So that's all coming up on this episode of The Francis Effect. Please stay with us.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Horan and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on Monday, December 5th, in the case of 303 Creative versus Elenis. The case was brought to the court on behalf of Lori Smith, a Colorado-based website designer and devout Christian. What is at issue in the case is that Smith wants to expand her business to include designing wedding websites, but only for heterosexual couples. To that end, Smith wants to post a message on her own website explaining her religious objections to same-sex marriage to turn away would-be same-sex couples as clients. The problem for Smith is that the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, also known as CADA, C-A-D-A, prohibits public businesses from discriminating on the basis of numerous characteristics, including sexual orientation. The law defines discrimination not only as refusing to provide goods or services, but also publishing any communication that says or implies that an individual's patronage is unwelcome because of a protected characteristic. Even before Smith suffered any restriction from the Colorado law, her case was taken up by the right-wing legal group Alliance Defending Freedom. In their description, the Colorado anti-discrimination law is, quote, censoring what Smith wants to say and requiring her to create designs that violate her beliefs about marriage, unquote. Arguing the case before the court were Alliance Defending Freedom lawyer Kristen Wagoner, Colorado Solicitor General Eric Olson, and Brian Fletcher, Principal Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. David, you've been following this case and you listened to the oral arguments on Monday. What should be our focus here?
0: Well, let me give a a very quick recap of what brought us to this point. And to do that, I'm going to go back a couple of decades. So there was a case in 1989, 1990 that went by the name of Employment Division versus Smith. And if you haven't heard of this case, it is a landmark case because it basically swept aside a bunch of previous case law, and it was written by Justice Antonin Scalia, and it, it effectively eviscerated the portion of the First Amendment that we call the Free Exercise Clause. After Employment Division v. Smith, no successful free exercise case was brought for a number of decades. And so the Congress kind of scrambled and wanted to figure out, is there a way that we can replace these free exercise protections? So they passed at the federal level the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and that was struck down not once but twice by Sandra Day O'Connor writing the decisions in both of those cases. At that point, there is no federal protection for free exercise anywhere left except in an obscure kind of piece of law called Arlupa, or the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which means that on native reservations and in federal penitentiaries, there is a certain carve-out of protections of religious liberty, but they don't exist pretty much anywhere else. Interestingly, in 1993, Jay Sekulow, a name that you might know from his association with Donald Trump, came on the scene and argued a case before the Supreme Court that was known as the Lamb's Chapel case. And what happened in the Lamb's Chapel case was that those old free exercise protections that used to have their own carve-outs and their own sort of precedents of case law, those all got moved under free expression in the jurisprudence. Every single free exercise case moving forward from Lamb's Chapel was argued from there forward on free expression grounds, not free exercise grounds. I I apologize if this is a little technical, but you need to understand that this particular case that just was argued, 303 Creative versus Alenis, it was intended by the Alliance Defending Freedom to be a challenge case to Employment Division B. Smith. It was designed to try and reestablish those free exercise rights back into jurisprudence. But when the court, the Supreme Court took up the case, they knocked out that portion of it and it was only argued and will only be judged once again, following the Lamb's Chapel precedent on free expression grounds. So it's a fascinating case in terms of the wider culture wars and what's been going on now for, you know, close to three and a half decades in terms of how all of these things line up. And so it was really interesting for me listening to the oral arguments on Monday the justices and the counsel arguing the case, none of them could keep free exercise out of the consideration, but all of them realized whenever it was brought in that it had to be taken out again. So it's a fascinating dynamic that's been working here.
1: Well, I think what's interesting to me, David, is that I understand the tendency to want to protect well, both the free exercise of religion as well as free expression. Our own columnist, Michael Sean Winters, in writing about this case, Pointed out, would you want to be forced to take as a client and design a website for a neo Nazi, you know, like the ones visiting with Donald Trump last week? But I think the difference there is that neo Nazis are not a protected class of people in an anti discrimination law. And I think what we're seeing with this I, the idea that discriminating against LGBTQ people is the only way to exercise your religion, as if it's the foundational principle of the Christian faith and the problem is that it is also discrimination against you know in many places a protected class of people and so the better comparison to me would be what if you said well I don't want to design websites for black people because my religion says so or something like that so I think what and this is where the columnist Michael and I agree is that there is becoming such acceptance for LGBTQ people And gay marriage in our country. Now, certainly it's not universal, and among certain groups of especially conservative and evangelical Christians, it's not. But it's becoming so accepted that religious liberty people are going to have to find another issue by which they want to define the need for religious liberty, which which is a fair concern. So I'm no legal scholar, but those are my thoughts, is that it makes me embarrassed as a Catholic and as a Christian to think that is synonymous with practicing my faith as discriminating against LGBT people.
0: Well, an- another aspect of this that I think needs to not get lost in our analysis is the fact that no harm was done to Lori Smith up to this point. This is a purely hypothetical that she's bringing. She would like at some future point to be able to put a disclaimer on her personal website for her business that she won't serve LGBTQ people in this capacity. And she runs afoul of that Cata law, the, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. But she has not yet suffered any damage that we can tell. The only way that this rises or falls is if this can be construed as a type of prior restraint against her speech. And the counsel, Kristen Wagoner, was really doing what I consider to be legal contortions, to try and make that be the case. And what I was heartened to see were the more liberal justices, particularly Ketanji Brown Jackson, which just brought some amazing and very clear questions and rebuttals to the hypotheticals that were being brought. To really put the same kind of analysis that you just put, how would this change if we were talking about not LGBTQ persons, but in Justice Jackson's hypothetical, what if we were talking about a photograph of a Santa, come sit on Santa's lap, get a photograph, but we're going to do old-timey Santa, and someone saying, in our vision of the 1950s, no no one but white kids would sit on Santa's lap, so only white kids can sit on Santa's lap, that kind of hypothetical. And to my hearing, counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, Kristen Wagner, had no response to that. And in fact, several of the more conservative justices tried to correct her answers to try and make them stronger against the hypotheticals that Jackson and other liberal justices were bringing.
2: Yeah, I appreciate everything both of you have said so far. This is. A case that is, on the one hand, seems very simple, you know, when we look at the reasons that that this is offensive, the premise that is. But on the other hand, it's the simplicity of the cases like this that make it so difficult, right? Where do we draw the lines? And so two recurring themes, and David, you just touched on one of them in reference to the oral arguments before the court, and that is the history of race, right? We have a history of legalized segregation, this idea that This web designer would want to post virtually or physically a sign that says so-and-so class of people are not welcome here. It just evokes uh, lunch counters in in the Deep South. And so I think that's something that needs to be taken into consideration, right? So that this is not an abstraction. This is not a one-off case. This is not something that's, well, I just don't like this group of people, and therefore I'm not going to serve them. We have a very deep history of that kind of violence and discrimination. And so I think that's worth considering. And Heidi, you mentioned these federal and state-based categories of uh, protected classifications of people. I think that's really important as well. The second thing that I think is worth noting too, and this has come up implicitly so far in the conversation, which is the distinctive LGBTQ homophobic, transphobic sort of influence here. So this is worth really unpacking, I think, in a lot of different ways. One is theologically, and you know this is something, one of the courses I teach this semester is a queer theology course. I actually teach it this evening, and we're talking about theological anthropology. This is the last unit of this particular semester, and the question of what constitutes human personhood. And then it's interesting to see what students say about the perception of Christianity more broadly, but Roman Catholicism particularly, and then to contrast that with what the theological tradition actually presents, like what the resources are that are far more capacious and far more diverse. I bring that up because this idea of identifying discrimination against any group of people, particularly from those who identify as Christian, is really troubling. How one does that sort of mental and spiritual gymnastics is a question, and Heidi, you touched on that a bit earlier. One of the other things I'm thinking about is the parallels in, in other forms of discrimination that are going on across the country right now that are not being heard as such before the court, but I would imagine it's probably only a matter of time, and what I what I have in mind is this increased energy around banning certain books from school libraries and public libraries. The New York Times Daily Podcast had a kind of in-depth analysis about this this morning, and we're recording this on Wednesday. And one of the things that was pointed out was the kind of organizing that's going on among parents and certain ideological groups that are sharing talking points and lists of particular books to look for and so forth. And one of their strategies is to go to town hall or uh, school board meetings and read the most salacious or graphic sort of passages from these stories to invoke this kind of, I don't know, energy and animosity and so forth and shock. What's interesting is that the claims here are obscenity. The claims here are this is graphic, it's explicit, and is it age appropriate, and this and the other. And one of the things that the journalists have pointed out is that not a single one of these parents who is so concerned about sexual explicit uh, content or obscenity or something like this has bothered to look at heterosexual love scenes or stories or self-help books and these kinds of things that are also in a greater number present in these libraries. That's a little bit of a a windy way to get to this point about what's at stake here is not just uh, religious expression or religious freedom or freedom of speech. What we see here is a very particular anti-LGBTQ attitude and agenda. And so one of the things I'm thinking about, too, is where do you draw the line if the court were to decide that a web designer has a right, as they did previously with the Colorado Cake case? You know, this idea of what constitutes commerce also is a questionable thing, because when you're having a heart attack and you go to the emergency room, you may not be exchanging cash or credit cards at that moment, but there is a form of commerce that's taking place. So does that mean hospitals in Colorado don't have to take care of LGBTQ folks who are sick or facing life-threatening emergencies? I just think there's a lot of implications here that are not yet
1: fully unpacked. Yeah, I just think about what it must feel like to be an LGBTQ person and think that, wow, this person's faith, this religious person's faith is defined by excluding me or at least excluding me when I consider entering into marriage, which is supposed to be a happy, sacred moment. And I just think that this distilling some somehow of Christian faith down to an exclusion of the other is not only not what, the whole Christian message is about, it's purely antithetical to it. So we seem to keep bumping up against this because this seems to be the preferred way for conservative Christians to express their faith. But I find that deeply distressing and problematic.
0: Well, and one thing that I find really curious about the present case, 303 Creative, if we go back to 1989, 1990, to the Employment Division v. Smith case, the language that comes out of that, that Scalia sort of emblazoned, was this notion of neutral and generally applicable law, that if you have a neutral and generally applicable law, you can't bring a religious exemption to it. You are instead bound to do what everyone else does in the political sphere by this neutral and generally applicable law. You don't get to have a religious exemption. Scalia basically said that would be a recipe for anarchy. What's interesting is that now we're coming to 2022 And what we have from the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act is a neutral and generally applicable law that applies to actions and to speech. And now we even have the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops writing amicus briefs saying, but this is curtailing our religious speech. And so, again, it's Employment Division v. Smith, but now in reverse, trying to say, no, but our religious speech gets to have a carve out from this neutral and generally applicable law. It almost makes me wish that Antonin Scalia were still with us because I'd love to hear his kind of disgusted reaction to this. But it's interesting to me just how things are being twisted in order to sort of Let me go back and say in 1989, 1990, the majority religion under Scalia got to say that minority religions had no rights. Now the majority religion is trying to step back in and say, but we're going to use our speech and preference our speech to make sure that these people that we think should be marginalized once again have no rights to commerce. So it's just it's an
2: interesting uh, kind of reversal from earlier. So I'm thinking about two things. You know, David, you've highlighted that this is not necessarily about, you know, religious identity, but the freedom of speech, the, the First Amendment clause. And, you know, one of the things I keep thinking about is, first of all, whose speech, right? So the web designer is wanting to make the claim that her speech is being infringed upon or being somehow curtailed by having to provide her services to all those who are legally eligible to, to obtain them. But at the same time, she's actually exercising a disenfranchisement of that First Amendment right to those customers who want to express their right to free speech, which is an expression of their own kind of lived experience and social location. So I think that that's also worth considering as well. There's a a version of what's going on here, I think, that can be viewed through the lens of self-victimhood. The victimhood of those who are privileged, who are in power, as you said, David, presumably this is a particular interpretation of the Christian Faith, and yet in the United States, that's Christianity has maintained a certain kind of consistent dominance. And so, in this case, it's actually an oppression, it would seem to me, a violation of the ability of those customers or would be customers to exercise their right to free speech. I also think there's something to be said, too, about Catholic moral theology and notions of proximity and how what relationship one has to even something you might view as distasteful or sinful or wrong or something like that. And so if you're providing the framework or a website or hosting this sort of thing, you're not filling in the content necessarily. You're not signing it, this sort of thing. I don't have a well-formed thought there. It's a bit more outside my expertise, but I just keep thinking about that. Is it remote, immaterial cooperation? You know, is that what's going on here? And it would seem to me that actually, juridically, it's worth considering. We see this, of course, and here I'm going to get, it's going to seem like a left turn. But um, we see this, of course, with what's being dismantled right now and precedent around liability for mass shootings and gun violence, where for a long time, the U.S. government, through legislation, has protected gun manufacturers from liability in these instances. And the claim is basically a version of the antithesis of this web designer's claim. Right. So it's interesting to me. Could this possibly flip back the other way? I hope that makes sense. I'm thinking out loud. Yeah,
0: it does. And you're touching on one of the most tortured sets of exchanges in the entire set of oral arguments. And that was this uh, kind of whether or not what is being done with these websites is Lori Smith's expression or whether she is a conduit for the expression of her clients. Now, as a person who works as a freelance media person, I, I, straddle this line all the time shows like this the Francis effect I put my name on it and I'm and the content is under my control and under our control to some extent so things not seen as well I've got editorial control over that but other things that I do for clients where I'm basically doing it as what we might call a white label exercise where I'm not putting my personality or my kind of stamp on it but I'm just doing the technical work behind the scenes the clients are free to do what they wish to do. Now, I would choose to terminate relationships with clients as a freelancer if they were pushing in very bigoted directions, but also at the same time, I don't see myself being represented by the stuff that they put out, if that makes any sense. And this is one thing that makes it very strange for Lori Smith. Is she a business, like a barber or like a soda counter, or is she a freelance contractor. And the Alliance Defending Freedom is playing fast and loose with that kind of definitional category as well. Because is she an artist in the way that an artist would be putting their stamp on every piece of work that they do? Or is she work for hire? And at different points in the oral arguments, both of those sides were being argued by the people who were representing Lori Smith. I found it to be an interesting sort of set of hoops that both the Alliance Defending Freedom and, again, some of the more conservative justices were were trying to jump through. And if folks want to take the time to read the amicus brief from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, you'll find the USCCB is
2: doing similar hoop jumping as well. So we'll continue to uh, keep an eye on the court, as so many of our listeners do as well. As we often say with so many of these segments, this will probably not be the last time we talk about this as we await what the decision is on this particular case and its implications to follow. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Earlier this fall, Pope Francis announced that the worldwide consultative process known as the Synod on Synodality will be extended by another year. In addition to the global meeting planned for October 2023 in Rome, an additional meeting in October 2024 has been added. The Synod began in October 2021, with parish and diocesan consultations, which were then synthesized in a national document released in September here in the U.S. That document captured the majority of synod participants who said they wanted a welcoming church that reaches out to the marginalized. Next, a group met in Frascati, Italy, to summarize all the input from these documents from Episcopal conferences. The Frascati group created the working document for the next phase of the process, called the Continental Phase. This working document, titled Enlarge the Space of Your Tent, also raised issues of women's leadership and LGBTQ relationships, which had been part of the U.S. summary. Progressive Catholics, some of whom were concerned that input on such topics might get watered down as the process moved forward, praised the working document. Meanwhile, others, including some conservative Catholics, continued to express concern that the synodal process might lead to change in doctrine or in church practices. During the continental phase, everyday Catholics will once again have an opportunity to participate. The bishops of the United States and Canada have decided to hold 10 online sessions during December and January, with sessions in English, Spanish, and French for input. Heidi, you and NCR continue to follow the synodal process, both in the United States and globally. What are you seeing as this next phase gets underway?
1: Well, I'm really glad to be able to be talking about the synod again here on our podcast. I gave a talk just last week to the Association of Pittsburgh Priests, which included a number of lay folks as well, and gave my view of the process so far, which included a little bit of my conversion story to somebody who was a bit cynical about this idea of a synod on synodality, to someone who is getting more enthusiastic and hopeful about the possibility of this being a new way that we can be the church. I think that the news about the movement towards a second meeting as part of this synod is good news. I think back to the Synod on the Family, which also had two meetings as part of it, which sort of lengthen lengthens the process, allows for more input and consultation. At NCR, we commissioned Archbishop Mark Coleridge from Australia, who was a representative to that Synod on the Family, synods, the two of them. And he talked about how when there's two meetings like that, It's not just a time out in between those two meetings. It's a time of fermentation when some of the ideas that are raised at the first meeting have a chance to be discussed more fully at the local level. So other people are observing that this move towards the longer process is a way of saying that this is not just an event, but a new way of being church in in a more permanent way. So I'm excited about that news. It was somewhat unexpected when the Pope announced that. I think what we're continuing to see, though, is that precisely maybe because some progressive Catholics are kind of excited about where things have been going so far, we're seeing conservative Catholics who maybe have um, just opted out of the synodal process so far, or maybe weren't part of those local conversations and consultations, are now becoming a little more overtly anti-Synod, and a couple of Prominent conservatives, including George Weigel, have written pieces for more conservative publications where they're talking about the problems of the Synod, uh, real or imagined. So I think we are going to see some continued polarization around the Synod. But I think the process so far has been one that's been encouraging, even though I think especially progressive Catholics Would be smart to not get their hopes up for immediate change in certain things like women's ordination or recognition of same sex relationships. I think previous synods have shown us that if you attach your hopes to a specific action like that coming out of a synod, you might be just disappointed. But I think the fact that these things are being talked about across the church worldwide has been a positive thing. And as we move into this next phase, I'm hoping that will continue. What are your observations about the synod so far?
2: Yeah, I share a kind of cautious optimism, I guess would be the way to describe it. I think in light of some of the other work that I'm doing that's not directly related to the Synod here in the U.S. and abroad, I'm just thinking about some academic conversations that have been happening in recent months that I've been a part of. Sometimes just having spaces where people can voice these observations, concerns, and experiences, I don't want to say it's enough, but it is something. And I think we can be too quick at times to be cynical or to be dismissive or to be skeptical and say, well, what difference is this going to make? And even if it weren't, so I'm thinking of recent synods where things were raised and by the time you get to the final document or even to an apostolic exhortation following a synod, some of these things don't carry all the way through with their sort of heft and directness. Two, two recent synods come to mind. One, the, young, the Synod on Young People and Vocation, and the other on the Amazon, the Pan-Amazon Synod. And in the Pan-Amazon Synod, ordination or ministry were other things that came to the fore, including women being admitted to the diaconate and the proposal to ordain married men. And so the, the fact, though, that those conversations did happen and are ongoing, that there's still a second commission on the question of women being admitted to the diaconate, I think those are hopeful. I know there's a kind of cynical response and sometimes tongue-in-cheek presented that the church, you know, doesn't move quickly. It's, it moves in centuries, which is true. It's historically accurate. But it's also important to realize that doctrine does develop and that practices in the church can change very quickly when it's not explicitly doctrinal. And I think that's some of the, the kind of nuancing that, that has to be taken into consideration as well. Are there things that are practices and principles and policies to use sort of secular language? Or are there things that are at the core of either defined doctrine or certainly no one's talking about dogmatic changes? And I think the sloppiness in which some people who are resistant to the conversations, the synodal process invokes, are quick to blur the lines between those things. As if everything that we do right now is the way it always is and should be and should never change. And I always bring up religious liberty, which we talked a little bit about in the last segment. As a great case study of how 50 years ago, religious liberty was completely off the table and antithetical to Catholic identity, especially in the United States. And now it's being used and deployed in such different and, I would argue, problematic ways.
0: Well, and I just want to add, and I love that you're bringing in the kind of shift in doctrine. I want to bring a different thematic shift as well. Longtime listeners will know that I return again and again to a speech that Pope Francis made to the United Nations, where he says that the task of Catholics, of Christians today, is to help the poor and the vulnerable to become agents of their own dignity. And I'm thinking of that now through a lens of a really excellent commentary from Commonweal by Susan Bigelow Reynolds that came out just recently. And the name of the piece is, Are We Protagonists Yet?, And where Susan Bigelow Reynolds takes this is, up until this point, women have been referred to as a kind of monolithic block and oftentimes in the passive voice as if they are acted upon, but they have no space to actually take action in the church. And what Susan Bigelow Reynolds sort of notes about these recent synodal documents is that they seem to be shifting their thematic tone to actually open up the possibility that not just in in the Western world, but all over the world, women are saying in the synodal process and others are saying in the synodal process, it is time for the diversity of women's gifts to really be applauded and interwoven into the life of the church. And so the notion that Susan Bigelow picks up is, are we finally going to be allowed as women to be protagonists in the story? Does the church want to ally with us? Not, does the, not will women ally with the church, but will the church finally be willing to ally with women who are already agents of their own dignity, but they have been suppressed again and again in the narratives of the church? So I'm still sitting on that excellent piece and really kind of sifting it around because it shifted some categories for me that were really powerful.
1: Thank you for mentioning that, David, because that was a very strong piece, and I, I couldn't agree more. One thing that concerns me is that while women and lay Catholics are sort of agents of their own dignity, it seems like our church leaders have, at least here in the U.S., in the way of bishops, have less enthusiasm for the synod than the rest of the Catholic Church does. So. Some of it might be understandable. This was thrown at them at the last minute's prize. I know you just are still getting over COVID, and now you have to have these local consultations because we're having this synod on synodality, and I'm sure some pastors or even bishops saw it as one more thing on their to-do list. But as it takes off, it would be nice if we could see, for example, individual bishops or the the body of bishops at the USCCB having a little more enthusiasm about the process. There was a wonderful report from Bishop Daniel Flores at the bishop's meeting in November, but that was kind of it. It seemed like the rest of the meeting, that was like, okay, let's get back to our culture war issues that we really care about, instead of getting with the program with something that looks like it could really be an important shift and a very important thing that's happening in the church.
2: I think your read is, is far too benevolent, Heidi, to be perfectly honest. I think there's one four-letter word that begins with F, and it's not the one you're thinking of, and it's fear. Fear is what is governing all of this. Fear, I would say, the bishops who are vocally resistant, many of them are resistant to anything Pope Francis presents. So if Pope Francis said, you know, we're going to have a synod on how to raise the, ordinary, the local ordinary salary, they would be opposed to it. What is this? Why is, what is he trying to do? This is new. This is et cetera, et cetera. But I think more importantly, there's a fear of losing control. And a lot of the most vocal anti-Francis and anti-Synodal bishops are bishops who, you know, deludedly are holding on to false notions of control as if they have that to begin with. I feel like a broken record sometimes when I talk about, again, this is my theologian hat on, when I talk about pneumatology or theology of the Holy Spirit. But I believe these men, whatever their motivations are to themselves and at the outset, at this point exhibit what I call Holy Spirit atheism. They think they're in charge and they're not. It is Christ's church. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in control of the synodal process. It's our responsibility to, as baptized Catholics, and those of us who are ordained as ordained ministers, those who are lay ministers and professional ministers, the church is not ours to do with as we please. It's not a monarchy. It's not a democracy. It is the community of the faithful. It is the body of Christ. It is Christ's church. And the one who really runs the show is the Holy Spirit, And the bishops who understand that welcome the synodal process with open arms because that is the way God works in the world. And for those who resist it, it's fear. It's fear that, oh my gosh, if other people get to say things, what if it it jeopardizes my moral influence, it jeopardizes my whatever, my own sense of ego, which I think is a lot of it. That four-letter F word, fear, is behind it all.
1: Well, luckily, we do have examples of church leaders who don't have that fear And I'm thinking of bishops in Latin American countries and the Bishops' Conference, Salem, which has modeled this synodal process even before there was a synod on synodalities. And in fact, we have evidence then that the exact opposite happened. They were more influential, more powerful, because they were partnering with the people to try to bring issues to the fore and act on them. One criticism of the synod that I've heard from a number of people with which I I have some agreement, is that while I think I'm very excited that the issues like women's leadership in the church or LGBTQ folks and how they're treated are important, and I'm glad they're not getting watered down as the synodal process moves up the chain, it is pretty internally focused. And it does seem that, for example, Salam and the Latin American bishops, when they would have their gatherings, it was much more focused on people's everyday life concerns and things going on in the broader culture, not just in church matters. Now, a synod is an institutional internal church procedure, and as such, it's going to be of more interest to people who are connected to the institution and care about the institution's survival, despite attempts to try to get people outside the institution involved in the consultation. So I think maybe some of that is to be expected, but I would love to see the synod focusing, in addition to those issues, being focused on poverty, immigration, refugees, the environment, life and death issues that are facing the whole world?
0: I want to say yes and to that and just say that from my own perspective as a theologian in the church, the concept of synodality has electrified my thinking. It has given me new breath and new stamina to think about the church in the 21st century. And to really become excited about the possibilities of moving away from a more authoritarian, hierarchical church—I'm sorry, Lumen Gentium—and move instead in the direction of a church that really is walking together, lay and clerics both, with the Holy Spirit. I'm very excited by those possibilities, and I'm, I'm actually grateful that it makes certain people afraid, because I think that those people kind of should be afraid. (laughs) <laughs> that they should be properly afraid because they are they are as Jesus once said keeping the tithe of anise and cumin but leaving off the weightier matters of justice mercy and the law and so yeah a little fear is warranted here and the synodal process is a breath of fresh air
1: that's that's great to hear your enthusiasm david i i think as we move through this next continental phase it'll be interesting to see who's still negative and who's joining the cheerleading for this process and of course, we'll be returning to it here at the Francis Effect as we move through this next phase. And through now, 2024, we're going to be talking about the Senate Synod on Synodality. But we'll be right back for our final segment.
0: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. In late November, the Vatican issued a rare statement that effectively amounted to criticism of the Chinese government for violating the principles of the controversial agreement guiding the appointment of Catholic bishops in the country. At issue was the, quote, installation ceremony, unquote, of an auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Zhangji, a diocese that is not recognized by the Vatican. Bishop John Peng Weijiao had previously been the approved bishop of the Diocese of Wejiang. Bishop Peng was secretly ordained by Vatican mandate in 2014 to serve as the ordinary of Wejiang, which led to his arrest by the Chinese authorities. According to a Vatican News report, he was jailed, quote, for six months and after his release was subjected to restrictions on his ministry, unquote. The report added that, quote, in late September, according to Asia News, Pang told the priests of the diocese that he had resigned as bishop of Yujang and accepted the government's plan to integrate five dioceses, including Yujang, into one, the new diocese of Jiangxi. There is a Vatican-China agreement, the details of which have never been made public, that governs the approval and appointment of Catholic bishops in China. According to Vatican News, the 2018 agreement, quote, outlines procedures for ensuring Catholic bishops are elected by the Catholic community in China and approved by the Pope before their ordinations and installations, unquote. This is the latest incident revealing the persistent tensions between the People's Republic of China and the Holy See. Earlier this year, retired Cardinal Joseph Zen of Hong Kong, who is 90 years old, was arrested on trumped-up charges and subjected to a trial and fines. Anti-Pope Francis figures like disgraced Archbishop Viganò seized on Zen's arrest and perceptions that the Vatican is not doing enough to confront Chinese human rights violations as an opportunity to attack the Holy Father. The situation is certainly tense and complicated, raising questions about religious freedom, government censorship and control, the actual reach and power of the Vatican, among others, and the actual reach and power of the Vatican, among other issues. Dan, let's start with you. How are you thinking about this developing story?
2: Oof, there's a lot going on, and it's complex. We have all the markers of a very interesting story, right? Because we have international intrigue, we have independent nations. We have a very secretive authoritarian government. We have a religious entity that also is a a sovereign nation state, Vatican City. So there's a lot going on here. I've been interested by basically the two responses. There have been two sort of camps of people who've been responding to these developments, both with Cardinal Zen and then more recently with Bishop Peng. And um, what's happening with what seems to be the Chinese government's demolishing of previously established Vatican dioceses and combining them to create their own sort of new diocese, right? So there's the Pope Francis side of things, right? He's on record identifying that he wants to be, maintain the path of dialogue. He wants to be the one who is talking about openness and conversation. And, And between the lines in some of his remarks is this acknowledgement, like you said, David, what is the actual reach and power of the Vatican? is there an enforcement, especially when you're talking about religious communities and institutions gathering on the soil of a sovereign nation, right? So it becomes very tricky. On the other hand, there are those who are very critical of Pope Francis and the Vatican's relationship to the People's Republic of China, particularly under the current administration there, which President Xi has essentially determined himself president for life. And so that adds additional layers of complexity. And to quote the title of one of my favorite children's books, their attitude is if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk. Or if you give somebody an inch, they're going to take a yard. And in some sense, that sort of disposition or interpretation and attitude has been proven true. So there's this kind of agreement that the, de- the details of which have not been made public in 2018, it was renewed in 2020. Shortly thereafter, you had Cardinal Zen's arrest, and these tensions have been escalating. I wonder personally, if there's a third way, I don't know what that looks like. I do think Pope Francis and the Catholic Church administration, will say broadly, is, is really in a, in a tricky bind because the alternative is to go back underground, right? So that you have the sort of state church as it used to be, and there's this appointment by government officials and all of that. And then there are those who are the quote unquote real Catholic Church, you know, and they're meeting not unlike in other communist nations of the past. I think of Vietnam, I think of Cuba, I think of other places where this sort of persecution has persisted. I think of of communist Poland as well. We can go through the list. So I'm not exactly sure what the answer is. I think the criticism is oftentimes unfair because of the circumstances. If Pope Francis says, don't kick out, don't arrest our bishops, well, what's he going to do about it? Send in the Vatican Air Force? The whole thing's preposterous, right? So I don't know. I'm curious what you two think about these developments and the reactions that have been unfolding.
1: Well, I was working with our Vatican correspondent, Chris White, who was had been working on a piece about the Vatican-China relations, even as the Zen trial was, well, he finished it just in time when Zen was fined for being found guilty. It is complex and it's confusing in part because it does get seem to get wrapped up in general anti-Francisism. So I just have been following the critique of the Vatican-China deal from the beginning. And I mean, my general feeling was to be open to Francis's attempts at dialogue and to be suspicious of people who could not stop the constant criticism of it. And not to say that there weren't things to be criticized about the deal, the secrecy, etc. But again, like you said, what better alternative were they offering? What I found interesting more recently, and of course, this is all happening in the context of so much tumult going on in China with the many protests that have been happening there, although good news today, I heard that they're rescinding some of those extreme COVID restrictions in the country that it seems were contributing to some of those protests. But in our Vatican Correspondence article, what he was finding is that People who are supportive of Pope Francis, so these are not the Viganos of the world, are starting to ask the questions Has the Vatican's dialogue with China reached its limits? That was the headline on the piece. And people are pointing out that the China of when this deal was first hatched is not the same China we have today. So I think it's important not to let this become just another conservative liberal issue that like conservatives feel this one way and I must feel this way because I'm part of this group. And I think it's important for everyone to be at least asking the questions over and over as the situation changes. Is this the best way to be doing things?
2: Well, I think the other thing, too, if I may add, that is not getting as much attention is the hypocrisy of those who are predominantly in the anti-Francis camp who are crying foul we shouldn't be acquiescing, you know, in conversation with the Chinese government and this, that, and the other. There are real human lives in the line here, real lives. This is a pro-life issue. And I think Pope Francis recognizes that and is trying to do the best he can to protect the lives of Catholics and others who are involved in this and the decisions that follow. And I want to point out that this is an instance of actual religious freedom. And so the same people who are complaining about this, the veganos of the world and the like-minded fellows, these people who are critical of Pope Francis along these lines, who are quick to resort, as we see, for instance, in the Supreme Court case and the amicus brief that's been filed, they want to cry religious liberty, religious liberty, but they're not taking into consideration that this is actually an instance of religious liberty where people are imprisoned for practicing their faith if they don't align with the Communist Party's instructions, or rules, or guidelines, and the like, and that people's lives are really at stake here. So that frustrates me to to a great extent. And I think it needs to be said that we're talking religious freedom is a real issue here.
0: And I just want to add another dimension to this, and that is, and and so I have no expertise in this particular realm. I'm just shooting from the hip, but when. 35 years ago, when the United States was regularizing most favored nation trading status with China, I was tearing my hair out saying, this is a human rights abuser. This is why, why are we regularizing trade with them? Why are we giving them what they want? The argument at the time, as I understood it, was if we can regularize trade, nobody goes to war with people that they're trading with. And so this will be a chance for us to exert influence through the market. Well, three decades on, how's that working for us? I think that we need to recognize from an American standpoint that China is its own thing. And our imagination that somehow China can be manipulated into becoming more like the West or more friendly to the West, I think that's a lost cause. Now, that doesn't say freeze them out of relations, but it does, I think, say that we need to recognize that we're dealing with what I would consider to be kind of a bad faith actor, on this front and i wish that it were possible to have the church be recognized in the way that we wish i don't know that that's going to be possible so we may instead be trying to deal with more like a situation that we saw in poland under the soviet union where the church is an insurgent against the government rather than trying to play nice with the government now again i'm speaking completely off the cuff. And I recognize that listeners who are better informed may have a different take, but that's just my sort of look at it, having watched it from the sidelines now for close to four decades.
1: Well, and it's true, David, or it's possibly true that that may be where we're headed, but I'm not sure I would fault Francis for attempting the path of dialogue first. So I think our faith, even if it's not always maybe the smartest strategic move, our faith calls us to try to do dialogue first. And I think what we're seeing is increasingly concern that's not effective. In addition to our own uh, internal church matters, there's the concern about other religious groups that are being very persecuted as well, Muslims and others in China. And I think at a certain point, maybe you do say dialogue isn't working, but I personally think it's smart and I would not fault Francis for having tried it first.
0: And I appreciate that pushback mm-hmm. on what I just said, and I realize that in my comments it could be heard as saying that Francis had somehow taken a wrong path. I actually agree with you that he, that in, in terms of his way of moving forward, I think that he did do the right thing. But the question is still, what is our goal here? You know, what would be a good result from these relations? What is the church hoping that will happen here?
2: Well, and I think You know, I think it's interesting, David, how you phrase that, you know, what is the church hoping for? And again, Pope Francis is not the church. All of us, all the baptized are the church. You know, again, it sounds sentimental, but I go back to the real lives. It's interesting because my context in this, I I can't give too much information out because this will potentially jeopardize the safety of some people in some of these countries in East Asia in particular. But yeah, I'm hesitate even to set up the scenario. But I'll just say this, knowing Franciscans globally. And having worked on the international level, recognizing that we are an international order, I've lived with friars who are from Vietnam. I've lived with friars who are from China and Hong Kong. And it's very complicated. And I think in this surveillance state era, too, my guess is that even the podcast as we're talking right now, there are some people through the Internet, this will ping. And we, this, the fact that we're talking about this will be on somebody's, in somebody's file. And I think it's really hard to dialogue in the way that Pope Francis is trying to do this and to do it above board as best he can. That's my interpretation. But it's also the reality on the ground is incredibly complex. And so what does the church want? It's a fair question. I think the 10 plus million Catholics in China, which sounds like a lot, but in a country of one billion, that's still a significant religious minority. And as Heidi was alluding to earlier, I think of our Uyghur siblings as well, these Western and the West Western border of China, the Muslims who have been persecuted and been sent to, in effect, concentration camps and and internment camps, the People's Republic of China is is not interested in religious freedom. I don't know how else to put it, which, again, I hate to get back on my my soapbox, but it's part of what enrages me when I hear especially our American bishops talking about some of these things and using this kind of language, implying a kind of false equivalency. It's distasteful and disgusting because people's lives are really at stake. And so I don't think we've solved anything here. It's, it's a conversation I think it's important for us to talk about. And I hope, and I know that I speak on behalf of Heidi and David, that our listeners appreciate that we're at least raising these concerns up, even if we can't come to an easy conclusion or solution or recommendation. As I mentioned at the outset of the segment, I'm thinking, is there a third way to respond to this? And so maybe you listeners have some ideas, tweet at us, send us an email, write a letter to the Holy Father, see what you can do. But in the meantime, that's going to be it for us in this penultimate episode of Season 11. We'll be with you in the week right in the days right before Christmas. And until then, we're wishing you health and safety and a blessed Advent. We'll be talking with you soon. You're listening to The Francis Effect.
0: The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.